All right, well, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Not going to go there yet, but you can just kind of have your finger there. And let's pray now that God blesses us with a good word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. As we open the word of God, Lord, I pray we would simultaneously open our hearts to receive the encouragement, the encouragement, Father, that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been many moons ago now, but at one time, I had a knock on my door, and it was a friend that I had worked with at at, uh, the previous church I was at. He knocked on the door, and he said, he said, Tom, he said, my neighbor, uh, he has been out of work for two months. He just found a job but he can't take the job yet because he needs a car to get to the job. He said, now I know you. I know you got a car you're working on in your garage. What do you say we give him your car to get to his job? Don't you love it when you have friends who are willing to give away your stuff for you, you know? I know God's will for your car, you know? <clears throat> so I'm, I'm kind of like standing back here like, yeah, you're right. It's easy to give away my stuff. And so I was just kind of like, well, you know, it's, it, I gave a whole bunch of excuses. You know, it's broken. Uh, it needs a paint job. I, I don't think I can even find a title. You know, I mean, it's just like excuse after excuse after excuse. You know, we're going to need a mechanic. We're going to need a paint job, all this stuff. So I, I said, look, man, I said, I don't, I don't. Now, in the back of my mind, I know I can do all this stuff. I'm going to get all this stuff done because my intention was to sell the car and get a pickup truck. That's, I've, I've, I had one when we first got married. Stupidest thing I ever did was sell it after I got married. I don't know why I did that, but I just did. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I got to get back into a pickup truck. And so I kept praying, Lord, Lord, I need a pickup truck. Now, here's the funny thing. The car was actually given to me by somebody else. So it's, it's not like I'm be out the money. You know, I didn't pay for this car. But still, this was my ticket to get my pickup truck. So when he came to my door, and he's like, hey, why don't we give away your car to this guy who really needs it? Because, well, I'll just tell you, I walked to work at that point because the church was in my backyard. <laughs> so I set a little gate on the fence, and I literally could walk to work there and back. Made lunches great. I could just run home for lunch, you know. So anyway, uh, so I'm in this situation. I, I say, you know what? No, I'm not. Not gonna give away a car, dude. You know, it's, uh, there are people who do that. They're called rich people. You know, go find one of them. You know, I am not not obviously one of them, as you can see. You know, and so, so he's like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, so he he kind of went off, and you know, I closed the door, and and I was like, what was up with that? And I I went and sat down on the couch, and you ever have that odd moment where this thought comes into your head. And you know it's not your thoughts because you would never think that thought. But the thought came in, why don't you give him the car? Ah, I, you know how you just kind of squint and you go, oh, where'd that thought come from? You know, ah, you know. And I began to realize that the Holy Spirit was trying to talk to me. Say, hey, why don't you give away that car? So I'm thinking to myself, you know, God, I am not going to give away that car. You give away a car. You own all the cars on the earth. Why don't you pick somebody else's car and don't mess with mine, right? You know, that's my car. 
I just kind of feel God wrestling with me a little bit, you know. Okay, but if you give this car, I might get you a better car. No, 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 I ain't falling for that, God. You know, I know, I, I know better now, you know. And, and, and I'm just having this kind of churning moment. And then I'm going through the list myself. Well, God, it needs a paint job. How can I give a car away that doesn't even run? And it needs a paint job. It needs a mechanic. It, it needs a title. It needs all this stuff. I'm like, you know what? Ah, I just kind of put it out of my mind. My wife comes home, and I said, you know, Steve McConnell, he came over, and he's like, why don't we give this car to his neighbor who needs it to get for this job that he got to get to work? And, my Tanya's, like, and Tanya's like, oh, I think that's a great idea. I'm like, God. You had to give me one of those wives, you know. So, so now I'm like, you know, Tanya's going to be no help in this. So I'm, I'm like actively fighting this because every time I'd go out there, I wouldn't see this broken down car. I'd see that nice brand new pickup truck, you know. And so I, I, I went to sleep and I'm like, no, no, no. I, I, I thought, you know, I'm really just talking myself into this. I got guilt, you know. I got that guilt that's like, ah, oh, you know, I should give it. No, no, no. I'm not going to be guilted into doing anything. So I just... I finally said, you know what, that's it, going to go to bed. Well, the next day, this is how presumptuous my friend was because I think he knew that it was God. He came up to me and he said, hey, look, dude, check this out. One of the mechanics in our church, he's willing to fix your car for free, all right? I got another guy, he's willing to donate the money for a brand-new paint job on the car. Another guy works for AAA. He's going to take care of all the title issues and he'll put the car in my neighbor's name and get this. We'll even get it out of your garage. You don't have to touch it or do anything to it. Now <laughs> I'm like, oh goodness, you know. And I'm still thinking to myself, I'm so glad you feel so free to give away my car, you know. And so, you know, I, I finally said, okay, let me think about it. Let me think about it. And, and I could just feel my comfort zone being challenged. You ever have that? You know, uh, I did not, not want to give it away because I didn't have a lot of stuff at that point. This was before kids, and uh, my wife had just had a miscarriage. We, we were working for pennies at the last church. It was very hard. We were just barely making it by. And I thought, if I give this car away, I am giving away any possibility of ever getting something like that again. I know how the world works. I ain't stupid. So I'm wrestling with this. God, please, you know, this is not my comfort zone. I am not one of those people. And I remember just kind of feeling God say, you know what, Tom? Maybe it's time you become one of those people. Maybe it's time you begin to learn how to live in a little bit of holy discomfort. Maybe it's time you learn how to live having a little bit of edge in life, a little bit of tension, a little bit of uncertainty, a little bit of, you know, taking some risk for the kingdom of God. So I'm wrestling with this and I'm wrestling with this and finally the next night I call him up. I said, fine, you guys can have the car. You know, I'll, uh, I'll open it, leave the garage door open. I'll put the, in Washington, you can do that. Uh, I'll put the pink slip in it and just come over and get it. It was a stick, just stick it in neutral, tow it away. And so, you know, I went to work and I came by that night and it was gone. And I remember thinking, oh, this is the last time I'll ever see a two-car garage again, you know, two cars in my garage. And, so, you know, time goes by. The beauty of life is you forget stuff. You know, time went by. I forgot all about it. He calls me up. He says, hey, uh, we're going to give it to this guy on Christmas morning. 
And he's like, you, you, you ready to do that on Christmas morning? I'm like, I'm not going to do this on Christmas morning. I, I mean, Christmas morning is a time when you spend with your kids. He's like, Tom, you don't have any kids. I, I know, I'm, I'm practicing. We're practicing. You know, we, we, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're not there yet, but it's going to happen, you know. And so I, and even that excuse was taken from me. So finally, we head out on Christmas morning. It's just around the block, so I just walk there. And, and I walk up, and I see my car. It's this nice Toyota Tercel wagon. And it's all painted, all fixed up, new tires, new rims. I mean, this guy got like 10 guys of the church to go in on this project. It became something for those 10 guys. I never, never would have known it became. It became their mission and their project. Men who had just sat in church and listened to preachers all their lives were all of a sudden doing something to help out their neighbor. And I could see the joy and the excitement in all of them. And I remember when I looked at it, my first thought was, now why wouldn't they do that for me? (laughs) We're all selfish at heart. Come on, let's say, you know, why wouldn't they do that for me? And, uh, but then, you know, we we go and it's like, it's like prime present time. It's like eight o'clock in the morning. We knock on the door and like there's seven men standing at this guy's. He opens the door. I think at first he thought we we're going to like break in and steal all his presents until he saw the guy he knew, his neighbor, Stephen. And he's like, hey, hey, what's going on? I, I could tell, you know, uh, they're, they're not dressed. It's nothing's that, you know, and he had no clue this was going to happen. And Steve said, hey, we got something we want to show you. And he's like, go get your bathrooms on. Go get your slippers on. You're going to want to see this. So they go and they, they, they uh, cover up and come on out. And he says, this is for you. And he presents him the car. And I tell you, I, I never would have realized I would have paid twice the price of a brand new pickup truck to see a family go to their knees and start quivering and thanking God for providing for such a need. And their kids, they had six kids, now I'm beginning to feel guilty, you know. They have six kids running out. I mean, this guy, he can now get his job. He got the job. The car got him there. The car got his kids everywhere. Uh, he eventually, uh, you know, gave his heart to Christ, and he started attending the church. And we made it very clear, you don't ever have to come to church. This isn't, this isn't so that we can get you through the doors of the church. This is just a gift. And uh, we didn't see him for about a year or two. And then they started coming, and they started getting some marriage counseling at that point. I don't know what's going on, but, but eventually I could see the whole cycle of God. That it wasn't just me getting me in my discomfort zone, but it was also getting seven, eight, nine, ten other guys out of their comfort zone. They were like a lot of you. They came, they listened, they, did, they, they, they looked good, and they listened well, but we weren't doing anything because life had gotten so comfortable for them. And this little project gave them something where they were not just going home after work and sitting down, taking out four hours of TV. They were working on a car that they could give to a family that badly needed it so the husband could go and have his job. Amen? Amen. Sometimes we have to remember that there's another Goliath out there. It's the Goliath of comfort. Now, when I talk about comfort... I'm not talking about hanging out in the backyard with your kids or watching a TV show at the end of a long day. Uh, you know, there is rest and relaxation 
as a portion of our daily activities is part of the blessing that God has for us, especially for us who live here in America. It's all part of the blessing. What I'm talking about is when comfort and the ensuing spiritual complacency becomes the driving force in your life. When comfort doesn't just serve you, but when we begin to live for comfort. When we begin to live for pleasure. When we begin to live for complacency. It is the Goliath with no taunts. Because comfort can be something that God has for us. And we can actually convince ourselves that God has given us all these comforts to enjoy to the max. But the fact of the matter is, it can become a means to escape our problems. After 12 years of youth ministry, I can tell you this right now. All the kids I ever talked to and counseled, there was a common thread they always said when they acted out. We are trying to escape this problem. And that, that, was my, that was my, the thing I always told them, you know what, do not make a pattern in your life where you're always pursuing comfort to escape your problems. First of all, it will not solve the problems, they will only get bigger. And second of all, you won't ever actually have a relationship with the one who can solve your problems, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen? In uh, World War II, most of the time we think of World War II as the sands of Okinawa or the forests of France and Germany, but the United States Army was fighting its way up through the Italian peninsula in 1943, a year before D-Day. And the fighting was hard, it was grueling. Many of our European casualties happened on the peninsula of Italy. And one such soldier one amongst 50,000 who would go AWOL during World War II, decided he'd had enough. He was sick of fighting, sick of shooting, sick of the army, sick of the war, sick of everything. And so one of the things that life had afforded him, he was an Italian-American, so he was able to go AWOL and blend right in to the country of Italy. And that's what he did. Took off his uniform, laid down his arms, found an Italian family to take him in, and they did take him in. And there he proceeded to hide from the war around him. They fed him every day. They gave him books to read in English, no doubt, uh, no, no less. And so he began to just kind of sit back, eat good Italian food, read books, be out in the sunshine. While all of this war is happening around him, this particular soldier was just kind of taking it easy and being comfortable. Well, one day they get a call that one of their relatives is in the hospital and they want to go visit him. It had been several weeks now since he had gone AWOL and of course with troop movements and everything, uh, they had kind of gotten out of the area. So he thought, you know, it's probably safe. I'm going to go and I'm gonna, I want to get out and see some things. I don't want to be cooped up in this house anymore. So he went to the hospital, but what he didn't know is that this particular Italian hospital had to, be, had to double as a military hospital as well because the U.S. military hospitals were full. So when he walked in, he saw row upon row of American soldiers recovering from wounds from their battle. And as he walked down the aisles, he realized that he couldn't even look them in the eye. 
He couldn't even look them in the face. Some of them barely had a face. And he kept walking all the way down to the end of the corridor where there was a little private closet. And he went, there, went in there and he knelt down and he wept. And he wept and he wept and he wept. That while he had been living all the time in comfort, these soldiers were fighting and dying. Fighting and dying for his freedom. So he went back out and he went home that day. He gathered his uniform. He had thrown down his gun. But he gathered his uniform. He had found from one of the hospital inmates where his division had been. And he found transportation. He went back to his division and he finished the war fighting all the way up through Italy and southern France and eventually being a part of the occupation force in Germany uh, ending the war in Munich in 1946. When he came home, he didn't share the story. It's not the kind of story you, you want to share. But eventually, 50 or some odd years later, he had told the story. That's how it made it in one of the pastor's journals I picked it up from. And he had told the story. And he said, you know, in all of those weeks I sat in that villa thinking I was com comfortable. I only had the illusion of comfort. But in reality, I was dying inside. Knowing that others were paying the price and I was sitting here all safe and comfortable. Eventually, it was a thought that was starting to get to me. And no, that I, I've never felt more alive than I re, when I rejoined my unit. And at any moment, death was there. And yet I was living the life I was called to live. Now, how many of us can honestly say we have that a little bit? God's put a call on all our lives. There's people we're called to help. There's poor we're called to help. There's discouraged we're called to encourage. There's people that God has for us that he has called us to, to the inconvenient call of taking time out of our lives to go and help. And yet so often we think, well, that's what the church does. That's what Pastor Tom does. That's what the missionaries do. That's what Ray and Melissa do. That's what, you know, all the, those people do that. But I'm not one of those people. I'm one of those people. I go to work, I come home, I watch TV, and that's my life. What God is trying to say here this morning is that life right there, that's like crashing out in that Italian villa while the war is raging on around you. And God is saying, you're not living. It's slowly dying. Never do you feel more alive than when you are running the race that you were called to run. Living the life that you were called to live. What God wants to remind us of is that there's a fight to be fought. A race to be won. And a kingdom to be filled. Part of the problem today is we have a thousand temptations not to run that race. Not to fight that fight. Not to see that kingdom filled. You know, back when I was a boy in the early or late 70s and early 80s, I remember we had like four TV stations, right? Sometimes three if you couldn't get the bunny ears just right. Anybody remember adjusting those bunny ears, you know? Kind of wiggling it all around. I remember once my dad had my brother stand with the ears pointed downward so he could watch a TV show. And my brother couldn't move because that was the only way it got reception, right? Had like four channels. Everybody knew what was on television. 
And, uh, you know, I remember that on Friday nights, they would let me stay up and watch my favorite show. Now, some of you, we're going to do a little guessing contest here. What do you think in the late, think late 70s, early 80s, what do you think uh, a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old boy would just love to see every Friday night on television? Get your hand down. Duke said, you know, it took the first service, what, like five minutes. They were throwing out, like, Care Bears, and I think they're trying to make fun of me, you know. They were throwing out all these dumb shows. The A-Team was a good guess. The A-Team was it? No, Baywatch, that wasn't for another 10 years. <laughs> but yeah, what was, uh, what was the other? Oh, Charlie's Angels, they thought that was it, too, you know. Love Boat, I don't know why any kid would watch the Love Boat, but, you know, I, uh, anyway. Duke's a hazard. Come on. Who doesn't want to see cars? Oh, I, that's right. I gave him a hint. I said, think cars flying through the air. You know what they said? Jetsons. <laughs> I was like, that's not going to be on Friday night. <laughs> you know, it's Jetsons. So Duke's a hazard, right? Every episode had a scene of a car flying through the air. I loved that show. Oh, every Friday night. Yeah. He even remembers it was on Friday night. I'm telling you the truth. But that was like the one show we altered our life for. I mean, maybe there was a few more. But I mean, these days, I know people who like follow 12, 13, 14 different TV shows. That's a commitment, you know? That's quite a commitment. Get this, we were <coughs> not, not too, a little while back, we went to a restaurant. And I saw something that was truly amazing. There was a family of four, uh, a mother and a father, husband and wife, and then a daughter and a son. And we saw something kind of interesting. All four had smartphones, right? All four of them had smartphones, and they're all... So I, I faked having to go to the bathroom because I'm nosy. <laughs> I'm nosy. I wanted to see what they were looking at on their cell phones. So, so I go by, and the dad is checking his work emails. He's obviously still at work, even though he's supposed to be spending time with his family. He's obviously still at work. He's checking his emails. Why is he checking his emails? Because it's uncomfortable, right, to disconnect from work, to say no, to shut off the cell phone, shut off the email, to say, I am unavailable. You know, we always want to think, uh-oh, I may miss that email. It may cost me my job. I may miss that phone call. It may cost me my job. You know what? Sometimes we got to disconnect, but this guy could I could tell he was just checking his email. The wife, she was on that wonderful little thing that has a nice blue bar on the top of it called Facebook. As she's scrolling through people's lives, you know, probably wishing that some of those lives were her own. Uh, the daughter had earphones in. She was listening to some form of music. And, of course, the son, he had, like, Minecraft or Fortnite, you know. But the whole point is when you looked, nobody was talking. I mean, they might as well have all been at home, been in their rooms, and had microwave pizza. It would have been cheaper. Probably done the same thing, you know. There was absolutely no connection going on. And I thought to myself, you know, we live increasingly in a day and age where even talking to each other can be very uncomfortable. It can be out of our comfort zone. I mean, our little cell phones, they are our comfort zone. It doesn't talk back to you. Well, unless it, you have Siri. <coughs> but she's so helpful, so, I mean, you want something like that, you know. But, I mean, it's all of that stimulation. 
just brings so much comfort that we just, we've forgotten all about relationship. And we just go straight into our cell phones every night, all night, just going on this little device that stimulates our eyes and stimulates our brain and helps us to escape from that thing called the real world and all the problems in it. It's listening to the Goliath of comfort. Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, tells this parable. He says, beginning in verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Let me put it in today's language. The dude came into some money. He came into some money. He's got some funds now. And he's got a, he came into a, a good, good chunk of it. He says, I know what I'll do, in verse 18. I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. Do you want to know the translation to that verse? I'll give it to you. I'm not going to share it with people who don't have grain, I'm going to build bigger uh, barns, keep all the grain in there so that I can have it for myself. Now, I always get someone who will say, now, Tom, what's wrong with that? I planned the crop. I made the money. What's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with that when you think that way. You don't realize where the blessing really came from. You may think it's you. Remember, the body you worked with doesn't completely belong to you the air you're breathing doesn't completely belong to you the sun that causes the crops to grow doesn't completely belong to you all that we have is supplied by our true source which is god but he says i'm going to build bigger barns and then he says and then i'll say to myself you have plenty of grain laid up for many years take life Eat, take it easy, take it easy. You know, I mean, this, that is this guy's theme song. Eat, drink, be merry. The problem of money has been solved. And God says to him, verse 20, foolish one, this very night, your life is going to be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores things up for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And I love that Jesus put this ver- that, the, that ending verse in, because I'll tell you why. Jesus is not against wealth. He's not against money. It's that last little phrase. Blessed are the people who are wealthy and also rich toward God. See, there's one thing to be wealth- wealthy and not rich toward God. That's this guy. It's another thing to be wealthy and rich toward God. Jesus said when we begin to realize the source of our wealth, the source of all those things that can bring us comfort come from God and we employ them in kingdom purposes, that's a blessing. But when we don't employ them in kingdom purposes, then God says, you know what? You could be dead tomorrow. And then what? And then what will come of all of that hard work? It'll just be fought over by everybody who's left behind his comfort money had lured him into a false sense of security instead of taking life easy he should have stayed on mission 
the easy life may have been what killed him. I like this statement. It says, people who are satisfied with only the things that money and comfort can buy are in great danger of losing the things that money cannot buy, such as peace or joy. He thought to himself, I have to take care of number one. The problem is, he thought he was number one. That's a valid thought. We do have to take care of number one. We just have to realize who number one is. Who is number one? God. Wealth, comfort, and pleasure is to be enjoyed and employed to honor God and his purposes. Four things to take home, and then I'll send you home. First one, remind yourself often, life is short, God is big. Life is short, God is big. It's not like there's going to be endless opportunities to serve God, or not going to be endless opportunities to fill the kingdom of heaven. You know, as I watch my kids get older, the thought always comes into my heart. These are days that will never come again. Oh, sure, they may always be in my life, but they'll be adults. They'll have their own families. I'll have to learn my proper boundaries when they have their families. Because I know what I'm going to want to be. I'm going to want to treat them like they're all my kids. These are days that will never come again. So I encourage you, make the phone call. God's put it on your heart to make. Prepare the sandwiches four times a week. Pastor Daniel feeds kids who mostly have meals of Snicker bars and Jolly Ranchers. He gives them a meal. I mean, how hard would it be to prepare some sandwiches? Take some chips down there and see those kids laugh and smile. I was meeting with some people from our church this week who are retired. And, uh, and I just flat out, I was just curious. So what's, what, what are you doing in retirement? What's God called for you? And He said, well, we'll be honest. Church Without Walls is not always the most comfortable place for us to go. And that is why we have made a commitment every Friday night to go down there and do it. Because we have to live in a little holy discomfort. Amen? Make the sandwiches. Make the phone call. Come to the breakfast. Come to the festival. Go on the trip. Go and do the, make that decision to do that. And tell the Goliath of comfort what he can go do with himself. Number two, keep at least one uncomfortable thing in your life. The moment you eradicate everything uncomfortable in your life, that's when we become weak and slowly dying. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given. See, most people don't realize that phrase. I was given a thorn in my flesh. Who gave it? God gave it, right? I was given a a thorn. It's like a gift. I was, oh, I was given a thorn in my flesh. <laughs> a messenger of Satan. <laughs> Paul does not mince words. A messenger of Satan to torment me. He says, three times I pleaded with God, take this away from me. 
But all he said was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What was the thorn? We don't know. We don't know exactly what it was. Maybe it was Paul's singleness. Maybe he wanted to be married. Maybe he had an illness. Maybe he had eye problems. The Bible seems to allude that Paul had some vision problems toward the end of his life. Maybe it was an enemy or an adversary that followed him around and don't listen to Paul. We don't know. And Paul doesn't tell us because that's not the point of the passage. The point is that God allowed the thorn to be there. God was using the thorn. God did not allow the thorn in Paul's side to stay there because God had wanted to hurt Paul. God allowed the the thorn to stay in his side because he wanted to help Paul. He wanted Paul to have a constant reminder. Allow your comfort to be in me. Allow your comfort to be in God. Allow your power to come from me. It's interesting because if you really think about it, we like to go, oh, wait, wait, wait. Doesn't have God have good plans for me? Plans to prosper me? Plans to give me a good future? Plans to bless me? Plans to do all these wonderful things in me? He does. And it usually takes a thorn to get you there. That is the great paradox of God. He will always leave one uncomfortable thing in your life. Now, for many of us, What do we do? The pursuit of our lives is to remove all that scares us, remove all insecurities, remove anybody who bugs us, remove anything that annoys us. We live our lives to remove all of the things that might make us uncomfortable. I'm telling you this right now. If you want to experience the power of God in your life, if you want to experience a vibrant relationship with Jesus, he will leave one thing in there that makes you feel uncomfortable and pushes you out of your comfort zone. You know why? Because once we reach that place in life where everything is comfort, we become weak and we die. That's exactly what happens. If you were to skip exercising what happens you get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker so you're saying i never exercise okay if you were to never walk anywhere (laughs) every all of you had to walk to get into the building here so most of you anyway so you know what happens your muscles start to atrophy and you get weaker and weaker and weaker that is why god will leave one uncomfortable thing it keeps you strong in your faith strong in your mission strong in our purpose Jesus did not come to earth to relax. Jesus came to earth to kick the devil in the teeth. And now he continues to kick the devil in the teeth every time we give up comfort and we serve God. Amen? Amen. Number three, bring God with you to deal with your enemies. 
There may be uncomfortable things in life, but let's face it, there are uncomfortable people in life. Never do you see this more shown than in Psalm 23. Faith grows in discomfort. Rarely ever do we grow in our faith when everything is just hunky-dory good. But if you look at Psalm 23, well, let's look at this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. How many of you like that verse? That's great, isn't it? It's okay. You can say yes. I like that verse. That's a great verse. I like I like number two even better. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. When we were at the cleansing streams once, I don't know if I ever told Tanya this. She here, right there. Should I say this? I'll say it. I'll say it. We we were we were supposed to draw pictures of this psalm. Like what it looks like to you. And when there was the makes me lie down in green pastures beside the still waters, I drew a nice river. And I drew this nice tree by the river. And I drew myself lying down in Tanya's lap. (laughs) She was feeding me fruit. You know, so whenever I read Psalm 23 verse 2, I immediately think of that dumb picture I drew when I was 25 years old. Anyway, so... (laughs) We love verse 3, right? I mean, how many of you don't like, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Yay, God, we like this verses. These are good. We'll keep these in the Bible. All right? Now, let's go to the next verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. All right, God. Don't like this one so much. I will fear no evil. Okay, I get that. Okay, that's good. That's good. That's good. For you are with me. All right, we're getting better now. We're getting better now. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Oh, we love comfort. Until you get to the next verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a great verse? Isn't that wonderful? Yay! If only that's what it said. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What is the Bible trying to show us here? What is David trying to show us here? In the midst of our holy discomfort, enemies, in the presence of my enemies, there's a table that God sets. He says, you can eat in peace. Let me take care of them. Bring God with you when you want to deal with your enemies. Now, for many of us, we're like, hey, get me away from the enemies. I don't want to face Goliath. Get me out of the valley of Elah. Get me out of this mess. This is both good news and maybe difficult news for some of you. Sometimes God has that for you. God has the valley of Elah for you. God has your enemies for you. They are meant to be used by God to provide just enough holy discomfort where you continue to grow in him rather than just atrophy into nothing but a flesh-filled, comfort-driven blah, right? Some of you are going, oh, no, Tom, you're going there. Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't like to hear this. Well, you're not going to like number four anymore. Let go of the shame of being a follower of Jesus. If there's anything that'll push us out of our comfort zone, it's when you begin to talk about your faith or your belief. And let's face it, in this day and age, 
the church is getting some bad press. In this day and age, I'm surprised they haven't labeled Christianity a hate group yet. I'm surprised that they don't have websites dedicated to all of the things that we're against. But the fact of the matter is this. I have never been more proud to be a follower of Jesus than I am today. The amount of clean drinking wells that the church is digging in Africa so that whole villages cannot get sick but have clean drinking wells. The amount of hospitals and schools that are being built all over Asia. The amount of youth centers in Russia and in places in Eastern Europe that had atheism as their official religion for the 40 years during the communist era. When I see what the church of Jesus Christ is doing around the world, I'm so proud. So proud to be working for a God and a man that feeds, loves, forgives, cares, encourages, hopes. I love it. And you should too. There's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. You are following the most amazing man in human history. And nobody holds a candle to Jesus. Amen? For many of you, if you were to say, what is the thing where you feel you miss God the most? It is probably in taking Jesus with you outside of church. Let's face it, it's easy here. God, yeah! Jesus, yeah! Holy Spirit, yeah! What about when you're in school, those of you who are in the front row? Or when you're at work or at a family party where there's people you know, they're against God. Or whether you're on a recreational sports team and people begin to ask you about it. Sometimes we can feel that awkwardness of, ah, I don't, I don't want anyone to know I'm a, I'm a Christian. They might think I'm one of those. You know what? Let them think you're one of those. I am proud to be one of those. I am proud to be on the biggest organization on the planet that is feeding people, that is helping people, that is drilling clean water wells in Africa, that is bringing schools and hospitals to Asia. I am happy, I am proud to be one of those, and it is nothing to be ashamed of. I am proud that the God we worship came down and doesn't judge us. He came down and died on the cross, defeating all of that judgment. I am proud of that. I am proud of that. In fact, may we all feel discomfort if we don't share the awesomeness of God. And by God, I mean the Father of Jesus Christ to the world around us.